Please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. That'll be our sermon text for this morning. Before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, uh, as we have just sung, we pray that you would speak, uh, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would speak to each one of us uh, by your spirit through your word, that you would take your word and impress it upon our hearts, impress it upon our minds, that you would bring uh, conviction and and, and encouragement and faith that you would uh, draw us near to you, give us greater delight in you and joy in you and rest in your gospel and shape us and fashion us as we just sang that we would go out from here a changed people ready to serve you for your glory in the world. Father, we pray that you would do this, that you would meet with us right now through your word, by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the ground. There are at least two errors when we think about ourselves and our place in creation. The one error is we, we think of ourselves as little more than two-legged beasts. We are animals, after all, and we, we do a lot of the things that animals do. We have desires like animals have. We have needs for food and drink and shelter like animals have. We die like animals die. Uh, the psalmist confirms this, at least of some, when he says in Psalm 49, verse 20, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Sometimes we think of ourselves as little more than beasts. We treat ourselves like beasts. We treat others like beasts. There is another error, though, an opposite one, when we consider our place in the world, and that is that we see ourselves as separate from and above the world. Some Christians think that the world itself is bad, the body is bad, politics is bad, money is bad, and the best we can do is hope not to get our hands too dirty. We live above and look down our noses on. In this thinking, the only really valid and, and quote, spiritual job is to be a missionary or a pastor, and any other job is tolerated only as you see yourself as a kind of undercover evangelist or use your income to support more, quote, spiritual work. No, humanity is both a part of and over nature. 
We were created on day six with the rest of the beasts of the earth. We were made of the dust, as were they. We, we both need the same food and are commanded to be fruitful and multiply in the same way. But humanity is also distinct. The animals were made according to their kind, but human beings are made in God's image. Now, before we dive into God's image, there are a couple of preliminary things we have to say. And, and the first thing uh, to say is that the words in uh, verse 26, the words image and likeness, uh, don't refer to two different things. And we have to say that because that has been popular in different times, uh, in different places in the church. But the words image and likeness are used interchangeably in Genesis chapter 5, just a few chapters later. And so they refer at least basically to the same thing. We are made in God's image, that is, in his likeness. The second thing to say is that whatever uh, the image of God is, it is something that we retain after the fall. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, the reason given for the penalty for murder is that people are made in God's image. James says in the New Testament that, that with our tongue, we bless God and we curse people made in his likeness, James 3, 9. Hence, our being created in the image of God doesn't go away because of sin after the fall. As one commentator put it, as long as we are human, we are by definition in the image of God. At the same time, whatever the image of God is, it must be renewed after the fall. Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, as we will see, talk about us being renewed in the image of God through Jesus. If that, if that image must be renewed, it was somehow tarnished by the fall. Though not destroyed, it has been distorted. Now, there has been a bit of a debate uh, about the image of God over the past, uh, I don't know, 100 years or so. Uh, the debate asks the question, does the image of God have to do with our constitution or with our calling? Does it relate to our form, who we are, or to our function, what we do? Is it that we resemble God in some way or that we represent him? By what we do. It may come as no surprise uh, to you to hear me say, yes, uh, we resemble God so that we might represent him. And we can represent him properly because we resemble him. I really think any more than that is probably more than we can say, except to say also that there's a third option sometimes that people give, which is really a third aspect to this image and so you have constitution, calling, and community, or form and function and family, or resemble, represent, and relate. And so we're going to look at this creature, right, who, as it were, has feet in two worlds, both uh, who is both in and above creation. And here's what we want to see. That God made you in his image to resemble, represent, and relate to be as he is and do what he does in community with both God and man. And so we're going to look at, at these three things then, uh, resemble, represent, and relate. And we're going to end by talking about a fourth being renewed. Resemble, represent, relate, 
renewed. So first, resemble. What does it mean to be like God? What makes us any different from the animals? I mean, this has been a question that has puzzled people throughout history. Is it our ability to reason or our facility with language? Is it the art that we make or our willingness to share or cooperate or depend on one another? What makes us different? Well, the biblical answer is that we are made in God's image. But that just brings up another question, which is what does that mean? And yet before diving into the image itself, uh, let's stop here for a minute. We were made in God's image. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. In verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. What does it mean to be made in God's image, or specifically, right, what does in mean? What does in mean? You have God's image, and you have us. What does it mean for us to be in that image? Well, uh, thankfully, we get some help here from the book of Exodus. Moses was commanded in Exodus 25 to build the tabernacle, quote, after the pattern shown you on the mountain. And that phrase, after the pattern, uses the same preposition as in God's image. It's the same phrase, uh, after the pattern, in God's image, or you could say then after God's image. And, and the earthly tabernacle was to resemble the heavenly as a copy of it. Hebrews 8 tells us uh, that the earthly tabernacle was a copy and shadow of the heavenly. And then it quotes Exodus 25 after the pattern, right? Shown you on the mountain. The idea is that one is to be a copy of the other. And the copy is modeled after the original and so is a reflection of the original. To be in God's image is to somehow in our very makeup resemble God. The question, of course, is how? Well, one easy way of answering this question is to turn to the New Testament. Uh, when talking about our being renewed in God's image, the New Testament spells out various aspects of that renewal. So Ephesians 4.25 calls us to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3.10 says, we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so theologians have noted this and said the image of God consists of these three things, true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And so Thomas Vincent, one Puritan commentator, said this, the image of God in man at the first includes the universal and perfect rectitude of the whole soul knowledge in his understanding, righteousness in his will, holiness in his affections. And notice this, right? Vincent saw the image of God as being perfection of man's soul. What happens with the fall? Well, man continues to have a soul, complete with the various faculties of mind and heart and will, but those faculties no longer work as they ought. We don't always think what is true. We don't always enjoy what is right. We don't always do what is good. 
And so we have, we have the image in that we have a, a soul with mind, heart, and will, but that image has been distorted because our soul does not work as it was intended to do. The image of God is preserved, but disfigured. Now, I, I think this is accurate and important and yet insufficient. It doesn't say enough when it comes to how we resemble God. It, it is men and women as whole people that resemble God, not just a part, not just our souls. Even our bodies are part of the image of God, not because we look like God, but because our bodies, as Louis Burkhoff put it, are the fit instrument for the self-expression of the soul. What does that mean? That's a, it's a, a, the, the, to be the fit instrument for the self-expression of the soul. Well, think about it this way. Sometimes we say that scripture speaks anthropomorphically about God. And that's fine. It talks about God's mighty right hand or even God's nostrils flaring, right? And we say that's anthropomorphism. And that's fine, but it's more accurate to say that human beings were created theomorphically. That is, we were made to represent God, to put him on display in our bodies. And so uh, Psalm 94, verse 9, says, He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? You see, even our eyes and ears are a reflection of truths about God. Not that he has pupils and cartilage, but that he is aware of what is going on, that nothing escapes his sight. And in the context of Psalm 94, the point is he will judge every evil deed because he knows. How do we know he knows? Because he gave us eyes and ears. Do you think then that he is blind and deaf? No. And so our whole persons reflect our creator. Our minds reflect God's knowledge. Our hearts reflect his goodness. Our hands reflect his power to act in the world. Our eyes and ears reflect his awareness of what is going on. Our noses, his ability to enjoy the sweet smell of our lives offered up to him. So the first aspect of God's image is is our constitution, our our form. Uh, We resemble God with our whole beings. Uh, Chief among the ways we resemble him is is in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, but those things are expressed in our bodies, which were designed to express the character of God in us. Second, represent. We represent God in our callings. Now, I think we, we live in a world where we have forgotten our calling. As far as I can tell, that is no less true inside the church than outside of it. Uh, Humanity was made for a royal task. Verse 26, immediately after saying, let us make man in our image, God says, and let them have dominion. Humanity was created to rule over the earth. But that task is, is further delineated or defined in verse 28. When God blesses humanity, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every living thing. Now, I'm going to summarize that verse, verse 28, as, as, as containing three tasks, fill, form, and rule, or procreate, cultivate, and regulate. But there are a couple of, of things to notice about this trio. First, all three of these things are actually kingly callings 
in the Old Testament. Kings are obviously called to rule, but they were also concerned about, about progeny and, and creating a dynasty of kings to rule after them. And interestingly enough, ancient Near Eastern kings had a special interest in gardening. Uh, that may seem kind of odd, right? You, you may not at first think of gardening as a royal activity, but think about it. Royalty around the world, even today, have, have breathtaking gardens, right? That even some that there's no royalty left, but the gardens remain, right? So Italy and Germany and Sweden and Denmark and China, right, all have these beautiful royal gardens. Why is that? Well, it shows a level of mastery over the world and at the same time, beauty, which we did not create, but, but we can cultivate and bring out and show forth. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter two, I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. God set up man as royalty to demonstrate mastery over the world, to create uh, beauty in the world, and to rest in that beauty. That, that is not to exploit or abuse or misuse the world, right? Kings in the Old Testament were called to care for the world, care specifically for people, first and foremost. But uh, Psalm 74 gives us a picture of a king who protected the poor and delivered the needy and had pity on the weak and defended the oppressed. And so God has given humanity a, a royal task to steward creation, to watch over it, protect it, care for it, cultivate it so that it would bring forth fruit. Uh, second, these things, fill, form, and rule, are the very things God has been doing in Genesis 1. He formed the formless and filled the empty. He ruled over all as demonstrated in his commanding and naming of all things. And so our threefold task is in imitation of our God. A third, just about every human endeavor is included in these three things. Uh, the only category that's left out, which we'll look at next week, is rest and recreation. And so when God gives his charge to humanity, every legitimate human endeavor is included. And let's take a, a minute and just look at them briefly. First, fill, procreate. God's first command was to make images of himself, which is odd because the second commandment of the Ten Commandments was to make no graven images. But perhaps one of the reasons was God had already made his image in the world when he created humanity and he commanded us to reproduce them. God says in verse 28, it says, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God is here commanding humanity to have children. If you doubt that, right, just consider God's command to the fish and the birds in verse 22, which is essentially the same command. What was God commanding the fish and the birds? Well, it's obvious. He wanted them to reproduce, to fill the sky and the sea. Now, it is true, right? We have to recognize not everyone can have children, and some choose not to, sometimes for legitimate reasons. And while these commands, as we look at them, are, are there for all humanity, not every person is going to fulfill each command in the same way. And there are other ways to fulfill even this command. 
I think about it. God doesn't just want babies to fill the earth. He wants people made in his image to fill the earth. In order for us to develop and bring out the image of God in us, we need teachers and pastors and evangelists and mentors and coaches, right? Teachers, this is, is your job to draw out the image of God in people, to call them not, not to be beasts, but to rise above the animals in character and wisdom and ability, to develop the gifts that God has given them, which reflect him, to reflect their creator. And we could go on and talk about other ways that we are to fill and procreate. But let's, let's move on to the second point, uh, the second command, which is to form or to cultivate. Verse 28 says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Now, we'll see this again when we get to chapter 2. But humanity from the start was called to tend the garden, to, to so fashion the created order that it would be fruitful. And particularly, therefore, life-giving and sustaining. Remember, God fashioned the world on days one through three in order for it to sustain life as we know it. He created habitations, ecosystems, environments that now foster and nourish and nurture life. God wants humanity to continue that forming, cultivating work. Cultivating the earth means bringing out all of its potential so as to sustain and nurture life. And what does that look like? Well, I mean, the, the, the obvious example is farming, right? farming so that we have food, cultivating the ground so that it brings forth food from the earth. But that food needs to get to people, uh, which means we need truck drivers. And we, if we're going to have truck drivers, we need trucks. And if we're going to have trucks, we need engineers and power sources and mechanics. We need, we need grocery stores, right, for the food to be in, which means we need buildings and refrigeration, which means we need construction workers to build the buildings and inventors to design refrigeration systems. We need grocery store clerks and people to stock the shelves, right? All of this is part of subduing the earth, cultivating its life-giving power so that it can sustain life as we know it. Now, again, we are stewards. We're not to exploit the earth, but to steward it. We must care for the world so that it continues to sustain life as we know it until Jesus returns. And so you have filling the earth, procreation. You have, you have uh, forming the earth, cultivation. Third, you have rule or regulation. God created an orderly world, as we saw last week, and he created a structure, sun and moon to rule the day and night, human beings to rule the animals. Government was part of God's original design. Right? Even middle management has its place in the kingdom. A government is not a result of the fall. Government is not, government is not necessitated by the fall. It was necessary already. Think about it. Uh, who decides on which side of the road we drive? It doesn't matter on which side we drive, so who decides? If there's no authority to make such decisions, which have nothing in and of themselves to do with sin, uh, if, if there's no authority to make such decisions, you have chaos on the roads more than you have already. And government is necessary for an ordered society, and God knew that, and he gave authority to humanity from the beginning uh, to start with, so that the world would, would not only be filled and formed, but also orderly in the way humanity uh, lives in it. 
Now, my point here is not to do a deep dive in any one of these three things, but to suggest that, that whatever you're calling, every legitimate calling finds its roots here. You can trace your job back to Genesis, especially so when we add in the seventh day next week, and the call to rest and, and recreate. And you should trace your job back to Genesis 1, because that, that will help you see your role in the world more clearly from God's perspective. Is your role propagating the image of God in the world? Is your role subduing the earth so that it will be a fit habitat for humanity? Is your role overseeing the whole, helping things run smoothly and in an orderly fashion? Your job will be a part of one of those. And if you struggle to see that, right, you can, you can ask other people, ask those around you to help you think it through, to think through your job, your giftedness, your callings, because all of that is a reflection of the image of your father in you. So we've seen uh, that we are God's image and that we resemble God by reflecting his character. And we represent God by carrying on his roles of filling, forming, and ruling in the world. Uh, the third aspect of God's image is relate. You know, th there are a number of questions uh, that we have to answer when we begin talking about God's image. And, and we've skipped over two important ones. You'll notice in contrast to the let there be of the earlier acts of creation, in verse 26, God says, let us make man. It implies a, a greater intimacy, a greater care, and even importance with respect to this act of creation. God doesn't simply say, let it, let it happen. He slows down and he says, let us do this. And the question that people ask is, who is God talking to? And there are variations of really only two options. First, some say God is speaking to his heavenly court. Some non-Christian scholars believe that, that that means to other gods. Others believe perhaps it means to the angels, right? To the heavenly host in heaven. The second option is that God is speaking to himself. Some see it as kind of the, the royal we, uh, some as self-deliberation, others as speaking to some kind of plurality within the Godhead, whether simply to the Spirit, who is hovering over the waters in verse 2, or to the whole triune Godhead, which is more fully revealed later in Scripture. And so is God speaking to his heavenly court or to himself? Either one is possible uh, from the words here, so which is it? I, I think the best answer to that question comes from what happens next in the text. God says, let us make man in our image. What happens next? Verse 27, God created man in his own image. The heavenly court doesn't make man in their image, but God in his singular image. Is this decisive, right? Well, for some scholars, no, but it seems like pretty strong evidence to me. When God said, let us make man in our image, he is somehow speaking to himself because then he goes on to make man in his image. Now, it's highly probable that Moses uh, did not have as well-rounded a doctrine of the Trinity as we have today. And that's because God progressively reveals himself throughout redemptive history. But there is at least a hint here that there is a plurality within God himself, a plurality hinted at, as we've already seen, in that God creates by word and spirit, who, as we come to find out later in Scripture, are the second and third persons of the Trinity. 
But this plurality in God's image is actually seen in another way in the text. Another question we should ask as we think about God's image is who is made in God's image? And the text is fairly clear, isn't it, in verse 27, that both men and women were created in the image of God, which speaks to the, the spiritual equality of men and women, something that was likely radical in Moses' day. Now, the truth is, in its day, during any period of biblical history, if I can say this without being misunderstood, the Bible was decidedly egalitarian in its day compared to the world around it. That was true in almost any period in history except for today. See, today we have crossed a line between recognizing the spiritual equality of men and women and denying the existential difference between men and women. Tim Keller is fond of saying that scripture challenges every culture. And Genesis 1 does that. Genesis 1 challenges many traditional cultures by saying men and women are spiritual equals. We are both made in God's image. There is no better or worse gender in the kingdom. But Genesis 1 challenges our culture by saying male and female. Right? There is a real, legitimate, God-given, natural, created distinction between men and women. But what is actually striking is that it seems that the phrase male and female is parallel to the phrase God's image. Note verse 27. It, it, verse 27 is poetry. It's, it's set out in your Bible text, and it has three lines. Now, Hebrew poetry, more often than not, has two lines, and they use a kind of parallelism. And when there is a third line, it is often for emphasis of some kind, or to bring in some new, additional, but related thought. And the first two lines here are obviously parallel. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. What of the third line? The third line is missing the language of image. And in its place is the language of male and female. Why is that? Well, there, there could be multiple reasons. Uh, first, it could speak to God's creative life-giving power, right? That it takes two human beings to bring forth new life. There is nothing that more reflects the, the life-giving power of God than what we often refer to as the miracle of childbirth. But that miracle is only possible with male and female. So it's only together that we fully reflect the image of God. Second, this could, again, speak to the plurality within the Godhead, that a singular individual could not adequately reflect the plurality within God. The, the image of God is, a ref, is, is reflected in male and female together. Uh, third, uh, some ha have located the image of God in a, in, in a human being's ability to relate to relate to God, but even to relate to other people. That is, we reflect our triune God's image in our relationships with one another. And, and there is at least some truth to that, right? I mean, Jesus prayed that we, the church, would be one, even as he and the Father are one. And so our relationships in the church are meant to reflect the relationship on some level, the relationships within the Godhead. And Jesus says this no less than four times in John 17. He says it in verse 11, in verse 21, in verse 22, and in verse 23. 
And twice, he says that this God-reflecting unity bears witness to the watching world. He says it in John 13, 35 and John 17, 23. We reflect God's image as we relate to one another in love. And, and of course, when you think about it, it must be so because God is love. How could we reflect the God who is love if we do not love, have love for one another? Whatever we do, if, if it's not done in love, it does not accurately reflect the Father. And so as people made in the image of God, we reflect the Father as we resemble him in our constitution and character, as we represent him in our callings, and as we relate to one another in community through love. There is a huge problem, though, at this point, is there not? Because all of these things have been corrupted in the fall. Human sin means that, that while we still retain the faculties of mind, heart, and will, we often believe lies, desire evil, and do wrong. We have callings to, to, to procreate and cultivate and regulate, but we often sacrifice our babies, misshape our students, pollute our planet, hoard its resources, and misuse authority for our own ends and private goods. We still retain some semblance of society, but it's not a society built on the foundation of love. And so it doesn't accurately reflect the image of our God, who is love. Well, what's the solution? The, the solution, of course, is we need to be renewed. There really is so much that we could say about the image of God, but we need to end with these thoughts. God's image it, it, it is perfectly found in the person of Jesus. Scripture says he is the image of the invisible God because he is not just a man, but God, the Son, the Word become flesh. And he, he was full of knowledge and righteousness and holiness. He, he fulfilled his calling to form and fill and rule. Again, he didn't do everything, but he did what he was called to do. He did it all in love, loving us like no other, even dying in order to create a new community, one that will reflect the Father's love to the world. And then he rose from the dead to restore humanity to what we were meant to be. And, and, then he, and then he poured out his spirit on us that we might be restored and remade and renewed after his image. The New Testament tells us that we are being conformed to the image of Jesus, who himself is the image of God. We are being transformed into the same image, Paul says, from one degree of glory to another as we gaze on Jesus in the gospel and are renewed by the power of the spirit. <laughs> You see, if you want to be fully human, the only way to do that is to be renewed by Jesus. Renewed by Jesus after the image of God that you might resemble your father, represent your father, relate like your father as you reflect the image of his son by the power of his spirit in you. And the way that happens is as you repent of all that makes you inhuman and look on the son and believe in him who is fully human, and therefore fully reflects the image of our God to us. Let's pray. Our Father, we marvel at uh, your Son, who is your image. Who, who to, to know him is to know you, to know the Father, 
To see him is to see the Father. And Father, we pray that you would help us to, to grow, to know Jesus more fully, to look to him, to believe in him. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, Father, we pray that you would, you would work in us in that to conform us to his image, that we would be like Jesus in all that we do and think and say to your glory and honor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.